From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. In this episode of Land Stories, we continue our look at Austin Blair, the governor of Michigan during the Civil War, and in particular, taking a continued look at the idea of remembrance as well. And last episode, we talked a bit about this in terms of introducing Austin Blair as the Michigan Civil War governor, and doing so by looking at a a rally of sorts, not the kind Austin Blair would have recognized, perhaps, uh, taking place many years ago in a park in Jackson, Michigan, that bears Austin Blair's name, Austin Blair Park. And that rally involved people flying uh, flags of the Confederacy, the flag that we nowadays oftentimes refer to as a Confederate flag. There wasn't a single Confederate flag in terms of battle colors. Actually, the state flag, that would be the national flag of the Confederacy, did not look like the uh, Stars and Bars, which is the Confederate flag most people are referencing when they use that terminology nowadays. It looked a little bit like the uh, the Texas state flag nowadays. Not quite, but if you're at all familiar with your state flags, uh, that would be one of the closer ones you could look at. Um, look it up. Uh, Google it. And you'll see what I mean. The Stars and Bars, the Confederate flag, as we call it now, uh, is a flag that derives from a couple different places, actually. Uh, one of which are the battle colors that state regiments used uh, throughout the Civil War. And every state in the Union that fought in the war, every state in the Confederacy that fought in the war, uh, they had battle colors. And regimental colors were a very, very important part of not only the say the honor and the chivalry, those more historic aspects that came with fighting in a conflict, but they also had a very uh, commanding use on the battlefield, actually. And there was historical tradition behind that as well, but the, the battle flags became a very important part of the memory of the Civil War and then the remembrance of it for many years uh, afterwards, all around the reconstituted United States, uh, so that would be the the states of the former Confederacy and in the Union, and so the Confederate flag has its source there, but also the Confederate flag became the banner of the Ku Klux Klan very early on when the Klan was formed uh, in the wake of the Civil War, and the Klan was formed primarily to suppress uh, through absolute violence up to and including murder if necessary any resurgence of african-american rights uh, in the wake of slavery being done away with and so it was an organization that was founded from the very beginning in sheer violence and terror and murder of black americans the Klan was put down during the 1870s and then reformed again many times, and there are versions of the Klan that are still in existence nowadays. 
Every now and then they hold rallies, and oftentimes you'll see the Confederate flag or some version of it uh, at the rallies and other white supremacist groups in the United States that uh, trace their lineage in some way back to the Ku Klux Klan will fly that banner as well. And, and the uh, tie to the founding of the Ku Klux Klan is really inseparable. And so where does this bring Austin Blair into the story? Well, it brings him into it because that, that uh, rally that I mentioned that was going on in Jackson, in a park that bears Austin Blair's name uh, several years ago, that is one of the things that I thought of when uh, putting down this episode here and, and the one that preceded it, it being a part one and part two. And the reason for that is because Austin Blair was the governor of Michigan during the Civil War, and he was one of the founding fathers of the Republican Party, a party that was founded on uh, anti-slavery stance. So the Republican Party comes into existence in the 1850s, and one of the most important issues that they came into existence over was stopping slavery by ultimately preventing its expansion westward. So how do we get to a point where a man who has a park named in his honor, uh, a man who ultimately was one of the people in the United States that was instrumental in ending slavery, uh, thereby crushing the rebellion of the South. Also, um, in his role as the governor of Michigan during the Civil War, and Austin Blair in that role also had a very strong hand in forming Michigan regiments uh, that fought in the Civil War. How, how do we get to a point where that man... Uh, his name being emblazoned on a park and in a memorial that I'm going to talk about in a moment. How does that man, uh, his name in a park, end up being, uh, well, a name on a park that people who are uh, very obviously uh, flying a flag that at one time stood for an absolutely undeniable tie to the South and its cause during the Civil War? Well, that's an interesting question. It's a complex one. And remembrance and historical memory is a complex issue, very much, because I have an idea, and you have an idea, and your neighbors have an idea, and everybody you know and everybody you don't know have ideas on what happened in the past, opinions on figures, historical and current, and this is as true now as it was 150 years ago or 200 years ago. It's been true as long as the United States has been around, and there's been a body politic. So Austin Blair presents us an interesting look into what remembrance means and how it changes over time. And even though the Civil War happened 160 years ago, well, it is still something that comes up very frequently uh, in our politics to this day. Uh, so, In surprising ways, actually. I, surprising in the sense that, well, let me share a quote with you from Ulysses S. Grant. And this is a quote that comes from Grant's memoirs. Uh, Grant, briefly, uh, was a uh, very important figure in American history. He was President of the United States. And before that, he was the 
uh, highest commanding officer in the Union Army during the uh, American Civil War, by the time the war ended, um, had started the Civil War out uh, in Illinois, had retired from the Army, actually. Grant service in the Army went way back to the Mexican-American War. He was a West Point cadet. Uh, after West Point, he uh, served in the Army uh, as a quartermaster, actually, in the Mexican-American War. And then he was stationed in a few places around the United States, including Detroit, Michigan, actually, for about a year and a half in the 1840s, and had retired, though, from his uh, officer position by the time the Civil War broke out, and he was living in the northern corner of Illinois, um, managing the family business. Well, when the war broke out, the governor of Illinois had asked him to lead uh, Illinois Guardsmen, National Guardsmen, down to the southern part of the state, to secure the Mississippi River uh, from Missouri Confederates threatening to uh, cross into Illinois. And after succeeding in, a, uh, in that endeavor, leading the regiments of Illinois militia, uh, he was then put in charge of an uh, Illinois Volunteer Infantry Regiment and eventually had his... Uh, commission, his officer commission, uh, reestablished, and at that point, uh, Grant is back in command of, of uh, regular Union forces, and he has some success in Tennessee, and then eventually ends up in uh, Mississippi in 1863, one of the most important campaigns of the war, actually, when Grant uh, leads the siege of Vicksburg, Mississippi, which had, was at a very strategic point along the Mississippi River. And the siege lasted for several weeks. Military historians have studied this for, uh, well, pretty much as long as since the event uh, happened because it was uh, really f quite a remarkable military operation in terms of some of the developments in modern warfare that were employed there. Um, now, after the siege of Vicksburg, Grant then eventually, uh, over the course of the uh, remaining year in 1863 has more success and Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln eventually appoints him to command uh, troops in the Eastern Theater and by the end of the Civil War Grant has become the highest ranking officer of the Union forces. Now he eventually runs for president too actually he wins uh, re-election in the 1860, or wins election in the 1868 presidential election uh, is re-elected in 1872. We're going to talk about the 1872 election in Austin and Blair here in a moment. And uh, while Grant's presidency isn't remembered <laughs> or remarked upon by historians with the degree of success his military career had been during the Civil War, his presidency was plagued with a lot of problems, um, scandals amongst his cabinet being very prominent. But Grant was a very popular figure um, in America by the time he uh, passed away. And he died fairly young, actually. He was in his early 60s. And right before he died, um, at the behest of his friend, Mark Twain, and uh, yes, that would be the Mark Twain of American author fame, uh, Samuel Langhorne Clemens, his pen name being Mark Twain, and Grant's son, uh, by his side, assisting him, Grant wrote down his memoirs. His memoirs are absolutely remarkable. I think most people who study history in the United States read at least an excerpt from them uh, at one point. Now, 
that the whole kit and caboodle of Grant's memoirs is long. Maybe that's why people usually read excerpts of it. Uh, the copy I'm holding right now in my hand, the Penguin Classics Edition, all that I've had for quite a few years, runs, uh, well, close to 700 pages with the um, uh, index at the uh, end of the book. So it's a it's a long read, but it's a very good read. And the reason for it is because it is a unique uh, window view into the mind of one of the most important Americans of the 19th century. And even if you don't really care at all about the Civil War and you find that period of American history boring or so far away that it's just doesn't connect to you, Grant's memoirs actually provide an entirely unexpected, I think, for those that haven't had the pleasure of reading them, insight into just how Americans thought at the time, how they wrote, how they spoke to one another. Grant, obviously, writes a lot about the Civil War in his memoirs. After all, that was, you know, the thing that made him the very prominent figure in American history that he was. And Grant was obviously an intelligent man and, and knew full well why uh, he had become such a prominent American even before he became president. But nonetheless, Grant was born into a very uh, average family in the southern part of Ohio, and his childhood, I think, is, is well, his writing on his childhood in the memoir, I think, is in some ways one of the most interesting parts about it. Why? Because it gives you, again, this incredible insight as to what it was like to live in America at that time period. And way back when, I mean, we're talking decades before the Civil War in terms of Grant's childhood. So, with that said, Grant's memoirs had something to say about the Civil War and how he thought Americans might remember it. And Grant writes, I would not have the anniversaries of our victories celebrated, no, those of our defeats made fast days and spent in humiliation and prayer, but I would like to see truthful history written. Such history will do full credit to the courage, endurance, and soldierly ability of the American citizen, no matter what section of the country he hailed from or in what ranks he fought. The justice of the cause which in the end prevailed will, I doubt not, come to be acknowledged by every citizen of the land in time. For the present, and so long as there are living witnesses of that great war of sections, there will be people who will not be consoled for the loss of a cause which they believed to be holy. As time passes, people, even of the South, will begin to wonder how it was possible that their ancestors ever fought for or justified institutions which acknowledge the right of property in man. And the right of property in man, this is me now uh, speaking and not reading Grant's writing, but that last phrase he uses, the right of property in man, that, of course, means slavery. And so what Grant, at least what I understand Grant to be writing in there, is a suggestion that one day in the future, Americans will remember the Civil War as the war that, in the end, the, well, the good guys won. The just cause prevailed. 
to use his words. And people who were on all sides of the fight, including the South, will uh, not really be able to believe their ancestors fought a war to, well, persist slavery, the ownership in man, as Grant put it. Now, Grant, in 1872, ran for re-election. And that passage that I just read um, from his memoirs, in some ways encapsulates how Americans, politicians in the North specifically, men like Grant, men in the Republican Party, men like Austin Blair, were starting to vocalize some type of a formulation of how the American citizen would grapple with this terrible conflict that at that point was very recent memory, and most of the people who fought in the conflict and survived the fight were still living. And at the time, politicians in the North were really surprisingly divided over the extent at which people should hang on to what happened, hang on to it meaning as a justification for political policy. So, Austin Blair enters into our picture very strongly here. And what happens to Blair is, uh, as was the uh, term length of time for a Michigan governor, two years, he served one two-year term and then another two-year term as Michigan governor. And so Grant, or excuse me, Austin Blair was governor from the beginning of 1861 to the beginning of 1865 having won the 1860 and 1862 uh, Michigan gubernatorial campaigns. After he leaves the uh, office of the governor, he does not leave politics, actually. Uh, he runs for Congress, and he serves in the U.S. House of Representatives for a uh, few terms in the late 1860s and early 1870s uh, during Grant's including during Grant's uh, first term in office. And then in 1872, Austin Blair joins a uh, faction within the Republican Party that eventually splits into a political party of the lines of the Democrats, and they call themselves liberal Republicans. And Austin Blair may be kind of a surprising figure to look at as being a... Uh, member of the Liberal Party faction because Liberal Republicans were, by and large, opposed to Grant. That was almost the uh, sole reason why this faction formed within the Republican Party. They, and by opposed to Grant, I, I, I have to be clear here, Grant as president, Grant's policies and the conduct of the Grant administration writ large, so not just Ulysses S. Grant, uh, as the individual, because the uh, Grant administration really had two things going for it that would have opened it up to an incredible degree of criticism. One was the very nature of being the administration in office trying to uh, conduct Reconstruction. Reconstruction being the name of the federal government's policy towards the former Confederacy, the defeated South, in the years after the Civil War. 
and Reconstruction policies were not universally uh, popular in any part of the United States, including the North. At the very beginning of the end of the Civil War, there was more of a political consensus in the North that the South should be reconstructed in a manner that would bring it back into the Union. And after the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution is ratified in 1865, bring it back into the Union in the entire absence of slavery, because the 13th Amendment did away with slavery. Uh, now, that, however, is sort of the, wow, it would have been easy if history worked out that way, mindset, but that mindset didn't exist uh, for very long at all. Things got quite complicated. Complicated, especially after Abraham Lincoln is assassinated in April of 1865, and then Andrew Johnson, who had been an anti-succession Democrat that Lincoln selected as his vice presidential running mate in the 1864 election, ends up becoming president. And Andrew Johnson is universally unpopular in Washington, D.C., and many other areas of the country in terms of politics. His own original party, the Democrats, viewed him as a traitor, and the Republicans viewed him as a uh, man unbefitting uh, the banner of a party that had been formed and eventually fought the Civil War over the issue of slavery. So, what happens? Well, Andrew Johnson is impeached, but survives his trial in the Senate. The last uh, part of his presidency is entirely ineffective because of that. And then the 1868 presidential election comes around, the Republicans nominate Grant, and he wins. That is the uh, time period that Austin Blair is serving in Congress. And it's a critical time period because during these years, Republican Party, that would be Blair and Grant's Republican Party, is starting to split into factions the radical Republicans, as they were called, were those that supported uh, sort of rigorous enforcement of Reconstruction policies towards the South, in up to and including efforts at extending civil rights to recently freed slaves. This turned out to be a very uh, contentious issue across the United States because while most Northerners, by the time the Civil War ended, agreed on ending slavery and ratifying the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, extending civil rights to African Americans, that brought up a whole different uh, level of racial integration, racial equality, and what we nowadays would call human rights. In, in a way that a country that had existed for generations uh, that was built upon a lot of social and cultural foundations that were being upended by this, one of the most important of which being white supremacy, uh, was a very uh, hard cultural change to make in the hearts and minds of people who did not inherently believe in racial equality. And in the year 2022, I would like to think that most Americans, if not all, believe in their hearts and minds in racial equality. 
and in civil rights for all. But in the year 1868 or 1870 or 1872, such was not the case. And even within the Republican Party, there were divisions that therefore opened up over the extent of which Reconstruction should be implemented. And Grant's administration itself both helped and harmed the cause for civil rights and racial equality and in pushing the Republican Party more towards a party that was going to take a very strong stance on civil rights. Now, Grant himself supported many of the policies that the radical Republicans advocated for, or at least supported once they were uh, implemented. And that included the passage of the Ku Klux Klan Acts in the 1870s. These were laws that were passed that were uh, tried, they attempted to, and actually with a fairly great degree of success succeeded at it, of uh, putting down Klan violence in the South. We talked about the Ku Klux Klan towards the beginning of this episode and uh, how it ties into the, the banner that we call the Confederate flag nowadays. But the Grant administration was also an administration that was riddled with corruption. Um, the scandals of the Grant administration and the individual cabinet members that were involved in them, uh, well, <laughs> those could make up an entire podcast or radio episode series, and we do not have the uh, scope of doing that during this episode, so I shall suffice to leave it at that for now that the Grant administration uh, had a series of political scandals that uh, developed during its first term in office. And so by 1872, you have a split in the Republican Party that's forming not only over the extent at which the uh, federal government should be enforcing reconstruction policies at the South, but also whether or not Grant should run for re-election in 1872. Now, he runs for re-election. He faces uh, a fusion of a wing of the Republican Party that breaks out that call themselves the liberal Republicans. And their candidate for president is Horace Greeley of New York. And uh, Governor Brown of Missouri is the vice presidential nomination. Talk about uh, a name that may not be so well known to history anymore. How many of you before listening to this program could rattle off Benjamin Gratz Brown as the governor of Missouri that was nominated by the Liberal Republican Party in their 1872 convention to be the vice presidential running mate on the ticket with Horace Greeley. Well, if you couldn't then, you can now, by golly, because you know that. And ultimately, the Liberal Republicans were after, uh, they were after the corruption of the Grant administration, and they also wanted to consider Reconstruction to be a done and dusted deal as soon as possible and believed that the extension of freedom through the 13th Amendment and uh, ratification of the 14th and 15th Amendments, which uh, theoretically would have extended civil rights and voting rights to recently uh, freed slaves. 
that was sufficient in their minds that uh, Reconstruction had succeeded. And the liberal Republicans also had an economic agenda that they believed was more true to what the Republican Party had been formed on. And that is uh, an economic policy where government fosters economic growth but doesn't hamper it. And they believed that the uh, continued military occupation of the South did uh, exactly that. It hampered economic growth of a region of the country that had already been devastated through the uh, Civil War. So Austin Blair comes into our picture here by seeking the nomination to the Michigan Republican gubernatorial ticket in 1872 as a liberal Republican. He failed and ultimately did not therefore become elected to another term as governor, which he had tried to do. Now this gets us back then to, well, where we started, not only in this episode, but in the first part of this episode on Austin Blair. And that is the Austin Blair Memorial in remembrance of Austin Blair. As you walk up the steps of the state capitol building in Michigan, uh, you cannot do so without passing the Governor Austin Blair Memorial. And as I stated at the beginning of the first, uh, well, part one of this episode, Blair is the only uh, person that has a statue uh, erected in his honor on the Michigan Capitol lawn. And that's really quite something because there are a lot of memorials on the Capitol lawn and uh, statues of figures, but not of an actual individual uh, represented except for uh, Blair. And in 1895, the Michigan legislature appropriated $10,000 to have a statue honoring him be put on the Capitol grounds. Blair had died the previous year in 1894, and 1894-1895, this is 30 years now since the Civil War uh, has passed, and the decade of the 1890s is one in which throughout the United States you start to see a lot of memorials, a lot of statues being erected, uh, in honor of people who fought in the Civil War, including uh, politicians that led during the Civil War as well. And, and the decade of the 1890s, throughout the entire United States, North and South, is when you started to see uh, a lot of these statues go up, including statues in the South of former Confederates, Confederate generals. Uh, so statues of Robert E. Lee and... Uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest and many of the other uh, Confederate officers during the war, and, and I mentioned only those two names amongst many others I could have, partially because, of course, over the last decade we've seen in the United States an effort around the South to uh, do something with those statues, either take them down or put something up that tells the story of uh, why those statues are there and and I think it's worth noting that these types of remembrances typically do go up, not right after an event happens, but after people who lived through the event are no longer around. And in some ways, this is kind of counter to what Grant had suggested in his memoirs in a quote I read just a few moments ago, that 
at one point, people wouldn't really remember much about the Civil War except for the fact that it was a, a war that ultimately the side was on the right one. But the Michigan legislature did appropriate, therefore, $10,000 in 1895 to have the Austin Blur Memorial built. $10,000 is a lot of money back then. It's well over $200,000 uh, in the equivalent of our uh, dollars spending power in the year 2022. So it was a, a lot of money. And Edward Clark Potter uh, of Enfield, Massachusetts, was the sculptor who uh, sculpted the bronze statue of Austin Blair. And it was cast in Philadelphia. A pedestal was designed by a well-known architectural firm of Detroit, actually, Donaldson and Meyer. Uh, there are buildings in downtown Detroit that uh, are still there that were built by the Donaldson and Meyer firm. And uh, ultimately, the statue was put up by a uh, company out of Jackson, Michigan, and it has stood there now for many years, ever since. And I think it would be fitting, really, to conclude this episode of Land Stories with one of the quotes that is on the pedestal of the Austin Buller Memorial in front of the Michigan Capitol building. And 30 years after the Civil War ended, and over 30 years after he had uh, made a speech that this quote is drawn from, emblazoned on the pedestal of the memorial to Michigan's Civil War governor is written the following words, All the blood and carnage of this terrible war, all the heart-rending casualties of battle and the sad bereavements occasioned by them have the same cause, slavery, the greatest vilest criminal in the world. It must perish. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.